Welcome to our Systematic Theology class through Immersion Discipleship School. This is session four called The Doctrine of the Church. Now by way of review, we've already discussed the doctrine of God. We talked about the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of sanctification last week. And all of those conversations and teachings were vital and important. And this one is no different because for this reason actually is that Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves his people. And if we're gonna follow Christ, and love what he loves, that means that we need to love the church as well. Now, whenever you look at the doctrine of the church, some call this ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. And when you look at the Bible, the church, the people of God are referenced in many ways. And I wanna just look at some of those references. Like for example, uh, the Bible ref will refer to the people of God as the body of Christ, the temple of the Lord, the house of the Lord, the bride of Christ, and the saints of God. Some references actually refer to the people of God in the Old Testament as the army of the Lord, being like a metaphor as the people of God fighting against darkness and advancing the light in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But among all of these references to who the people of God are, you find this reference of the church being the primary one and the most important. The word church is mentioned in the New Testament 85 times and the Greek word is ecclesia. Sometimes people will say ecclesia. Either way you pronounce it, this is the Greek word. And this Greek word actually is defined as a congregation, an assembly of people. And in ancient times, this word in Greek was often used as a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into a public place or a town hall meeting, some event that was going on. So when this word was used in ancient Greek literature, you just have to understand it wasn't always in the context of, of speaking about God's people the way that we have in the New Testament. It was actually a common Greek word in, in that instance that when people were called out of their homes into the public square, that was considered a gathering or a congregation or an ecclesia. And this is reference to the people of God as those who are called out uh, of something and called into being the people of God gathered together. And this is super important because it's very popular in our world today for people to say things like, well, um, I don't need to go to church because I am the church, which is actually not true. The word church is never referred to a person. It's never a reference of an individual. It's always a reference to a people and a people gathered together. Now that's vital, you have to catch that because again, it's super popular for people to take that word and make it mean something that it just never has meant and never could mean in its definition. And so we see things uh, like that in our times today, but we need to look at what the church is not. And the church is not a building, the church is not a social club, the church is not a recreational center, and the church is not a denomination. The church is the people of God united together in the name of Jesus, carrying out the mission of Jesus. Now I wanna say, say that again so that you get it because this is my working definition of what we're talking about the church. The church is the people of God united together in the name of Jesus, carrying the mission of Jesus. The church is not just a meeting, but as the church we often meet together. The church is not something you attend, it is something you belong to. The church is not a person, but it's a people. And the church is not something we are without one another. Regardless of what popular opinion or people that leave the local assembly say, it's just not true. You are not the church by yourself. You never will be and you never can be. It is us 
gathered together, the congregation of the Lord. Now I want to look really briefly at the beginning of the church. We kind of see the genesis of this. We see the heart of Jesus in this so that we, we can recapture the value that he places on his people, which he calls the church. In the Old Testament, we clearly see that God specifically chose the nation of Israel to be his people. He set them apart and they brought forth the priests, the law, the tabernacle, and then ultimately the temple and the sacrificial system, all of which was going to speak about Jesus who would come and he would fulfill all things and uh, satisfy the demands of the law, be the ultimate once and for all sacrifice, be our priest and mediator between God the Father and people, obviously not just the nation of Israel, but ultimately would be all people, all nations, as the Bible references time and time again. But Israel, the Jewish people, they were set apart to bring all of this forth, and God still has a purpose and plan for Israel. We don't believe in replacement theology, or at least I don't, and I still believe that the promises that were made to the God's first friends, Israel, the Jewish people, he is still going to fulfill his purposes and promises in them because they play a vital role in the story of the church, in the story of God, and the mission of God overall. And you see that throughout scripture, and we honor what God honors, and we thank God um, the way that he has chosen to do this. But ultimately, what would happen is the Jewish people would bring forth the Messiah so that all people would have a legitimate opportunity to come back into relationship with their Heavenly Father. This is what Jesus spoke about when he would give the Great Commission. He'd say, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. He said in Mark 16, preach the gospel to all nations. And we see that this plan to the Jewish people wasn't fully understood until Acts chapter 10, where they finally got it, that this gospel was meant for every nation to be reconciled under heaven through Jesus Christ. And the first reference that we have of the church in the New Testament is where Jesus reveals who he is to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 20. There's also other references in the other gospels, but this is the one that I'm going to read. And here's what it says, Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, Jesus makes several things clear in this passage about the church that will later make sense when we look at Acts chapter 2 and further. But there's some points that I want to make in this passage that I think are important in the onset as we're discussing the beginning of the church. And this is the first point. The church is built on and through the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. The church is built on and through the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. This is what Jesus says to Peter. When, Pe when Jesus says to Peter, who do men say that I am? Peter's the one that speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus' response to that was, and you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. 
Obviously, some denominations believe that the church was built on Peter. We don't believe that. What I believe, of course, is what Jesus was referencing was the revelation that Peter had, the revelation that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says in response to that, I will build my church on this, on that revelation of who I am. We know later that Jesus speaks of himself, or at least Paul speaks of Jesus, that he's the head of the church. Obviously, and this is where this reference would come from, or I mean, later be referred to. The second point from this passage we read is the church is led and built by the Lord Jesus. This is what he says, I will build my church, is what he said to Peter. I will build my church. Now that doesn't mean that our efforts and our outreach and our obedience and all of that isn't important. Obviously it is because we're called to obey God. We're called to fulfill the Great Commission. We're called to go in the name of Jesus and do all that he's commissioned us to do. We're called to continue his ministry, carry his message. That's all important. But at the end of the day, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's through him coming and initiating and inaugurating his kingdom and really the first part of building his church, which is the people of God gathered together he said, I will build my church. He's in the midst of it. He's the initiator of it. He's the completer of it. And we need to remember that. He wants us to know that he is the one that will ultimately build his church. We are working in cooperation with him. It is not him that is in cooperation with us. The third point is the church carries the authority of Jesus Christ. He says to Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and what you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. I will give you the keys. Now, keys speak of access. Obviously, if something, a door is locked, a car door is locked, a house door is locked, you need a key to unlock it and to be able to access that place that you're trying to get into. Jesus said, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You will be able to access things in order to do what I'm calling you to do. You will have kingdom resources, kingdom finances, and all that you will ever need in order to fulfill my mission. I am literally giving you keys to the kingdom as you go about as my church, as my people, and do what I've called you to. We have authority. We have access. Now, this is so important that we realize that we have authority to do what Jesus told us to do. That's where our confidence comes from. It doesn't come from how we feel today. It doesn't come from our gifts. It doesn't come from our skill set. It comes from the word of God where Jesus said, I will give you authority. I will give you keys to the kingdom of heaven. There is no other word that could be greater than this, regardless of what stands against us. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now that's vital. No matter what's opposing us, what's coming against us, how that feels, what we're interacting with, what we're experiencing, there's a greater word above it all. I will give you keys to the kingdom. Now this gives us great confidence as we pray, great confidence as we plant churches, great confidence as we evangelize. We know that the Holy Spirit of God is, is well equipped us and is moving through us to accomplish according to the will of Christ. Now, as we continue to look at the beginning of the church, we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 13, the birth of the church, which is really the birth of the Jewish church on the day of Pentecost. Later in Acts chapter 10 is sort of the birth of the Gentile church, and they work on bringing those two peoples together under one name, Jesus Christ. But here's what it says in Acts 2, verse 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested each on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all of these who are speaking, are they not all Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Pergia and Pamphylia and Egypt and districts of Libya and Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking, saying they were full of sweet wine. And this is such an important verse for, for us as God's church, as the people of God, followers of Jesus. This is the genesis, the beginning point of the church being born. And there's some simple points that I just want us to look at and think about before we move on to see how life was like in the early church. And the first point is this, the church is comprised of all genders, generations, and nations who call on Jesus as Lord. You see also, um, when you keep going through this passage, it says, I believe it's in verse 21, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the promise. That's what the poured out Holy Spirit is saying, that in the last days, God says, I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And he says then later on in verse 21, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We're talking about every gender, generation, and nation becomes part of what Jesus said is the church. Number two, the tongues mentioned were prophetic and that Jesus was being proclaimed to all people. Now, they were, there were people that supernaturally received a language that they had never learned before. And there were people there that spoke various languages and dialects. If you count them up, there's about 14 there. And this was supernaturally spoken, supernaturally heard. We don't really know. We weren't there. But we know there was a supernatural occurrence. And prophetically, what's happening in this moment is that God is saying that I am now speaking to, I am now including all people, all nations. And that's why Joel chapter 2 was the reference of what is or answer of what was actually going on here when people said, what does this mean and what is happening? Peter gets up in just a moment from here and he says, and this is that which was spoken of through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And this is so, so important that these tongues that we're talking about here, they weren't just spiritual languages, um, sort of an ecstatic utterance. It was beyond that. It was languages that were clarified. Now we see later that there is sort of an ecstatic utterance, a spiritual language that ne not nece can't necessarily be known without interpretation. There are heavenly languages, there are earthly languages, but what was spoken on this day were earthly languages that were understood by 14 different people groups or dialects, all of them in this moment Jews, but this is such a profound and prophetic moment in what is happening as God is speaking about bringing all people together. The third point from this passage is that Peter preaches a sermon to explain what is happening and 3,000 people were added to their number. 3,000 people in one day were added to the church as a result of one sermon. And you actually read or continue to read the book of Acts and it says people were being added to their number day by day. It's really incredible 
um, story. And the story keeps unfolding to see how the early church functioned, which we read about in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. And here's what it says right here. It says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. A day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together and with gladness and sincerity of heart, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This was the life of the early church. And when we talk about in this section, we're saying this is the beginning of the church. We see this is the life of the church. There were several things that you read about in this passage. And the first one was that they were a devoted people. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, that doesn't mean just the, the teaching or just the word. It means they also devoted themselves to the apostles. So we're talking about submission to authority, and we're talking about the authority that the apostles carried was the word of God, this direct revelation from Jesus Christ and walking with him. And I think in a culture and in a time today where people dismiss submission and submission to authority, they dismiss authority, they put authority down from parents to police officers to government to you name it. We're living in a time that's skeptical, that's cynical, that's difficult. We know that when it comes to the church, one of the reasons why people don't want to be part of the church is because they don't want to submit to authority. And so we really do need the Holy Spirit to move on our hearts in order to yield to what's best for us. But I know this, that when we submit to authority, God's authority that he's established in his church, we are blessed. And to the degree that I think we resist submitting to authority, the word of God and the people of God and the roles and responsibilities that God has placed in the church, I believe we're missing out on some of the things that God has for us. And so we want to take note of that. What we see was a value in the early church. The second thing that we see is they learned, loved, and lived out the Word of God. Obviously, I just referenced that, but this is so vital. In the New Testament, they're referring to the Old Testament because it had, the New Testament hadn't been written, really. They just were giving eyewitness accounts of Jesus and His teachings and then referencing the Old Testament which Jesus was the fulfillment of, but there's such a value on the Word of God. And we have to ask ourselves, is that our value system? Do we value the Bible, the Word of God, the way that we see the people of God did when this whole thing started? The third point I want to make from this passage is they did life together and built relationships. It says that they continued in the temple, and there's prayer and fellowship there, but they also went house to house, breaking bread, this word fellowship speaks about sharing things. It speaks about coming together. It speaks about partnership, unity. This was what they were about. They were about coming together. Um, they were about gathering in community life. It says breaking bread, having meals together, sharing, having all things in common. This is so, so important, which leads to point number four. It says they took communion and prayed together. The value of prayer is so vital. In the early church, they prayed like it mattered because it did. They prayed like their life depended on it because it did. And I believe we're in, the same, uh, we're in the same place that we, our life depends on it. We need to pray because it matters. Things are on the line. We live in a time where nothing is going to cause something to happen except that God show up. And we have to resolve ourselves to be a people of fervent prayer, seeking God day and night together 
in one mind, in one accord, in unity for what God wants to do. He even speaks about prayer. Jesus does. And he says, when two or three come together into agreement in my name, that which I will do. When he speaks about agreement, we've got to realize the power of agreement is so vital as we come together as the church. Number five says they experience, or it's this, they experience the supernatural power of God. It says miracle signs, wonders were wrought or done at the hands of the apostles. And miracle signs, wonders still happen today. It says in Mark 16, signs and wonders will follow them that believe. And this should be something that is, if not regular occurrence, it shouldn't be abnormal. It shouldn't be every once in a while. It should be somewhat of a common thing for us to believe and know that signs, wonders, miracles will take place at the hands of the church, those that believe. They met together regularly, house to house. They regularly met. And this obviously speaks against anything cultural in the church today that says you don't have to come very often. Statistics say that people attend church once a month, which once again, the church isn't just a building or 11 o'clock on Sunday. The church is the people gathered together. So when you don't come or when you don't participate or gather together, you're not really participating in the church because it's not something you are as an individual. You're a Christian as an individual, but to be part of the church and the mission of the church and the purpose of the church, which is God's design and God's idea, is not something that you can do or fulfill outside of, be, outside of coming to, where, uh, to when they're gathered or when we gather together. And the last point I want to make from Acts 2, 42 through 47 is they multiplied in number day by day. I mean, I call this the irresistible community. It's so great. It's so powerful. It's so amazing. It's so devoted that they experienced amazing things. And as they did, it says that people were added to their number day by day because it's almost like who wouldn't want to be a part of this group of people? Who wouldn't want to get involved in this? Who wouldn't want uh, to gather together with these people. And we need to go back to that where it's not about attractional models. It's about us having something in the spirit that God is drawing and adding people to our number. Not just somebody's leaving that church and coming to this church or whatever, but what we realize is that we are God's people and we're de devoted to what God has called us to be devoted to. And we're experiencing as a result the things that we read about in scripture, and it's causing this draw, this spiritual attractiveness that we don't manufacture and we can't make happen, where it's irresistible. I call it the irresistible community. Now, this is the beginnings of the church, but I want to talk a little bit about the structure of the church, because as the church grew, there was such a need for structure and organization, which we see all over Scripture. It's really what the Apostle Paul devoted himself to, is to planting churches and then to help churches structure in order to facilitate the growth that they would experience. But before I share some of those things, I want to break down a few more concepts. And this will kind of help us as we look at the structure of the church overall, because there are many references in the Bible to the church. And you need to know that these references don't necessarily all mean the same thing because there is a different, there's a way of looking at the church and seeing it on a macro level and a micro level. And I want to share that with you by giving you these references. And these, I believe, are five references about what the church is that will help you. And the first one is we're talking about the universal church. And the universal church is, comprom or is comprised of all genuine Christian believers everywhere. In other words, when I say the church at large, I'm talking about every Christian on the planet that names the name of Jesus that's believed in the gospel. 
every person on the planet is part of the universal church. Okay, so we, when we talk about the universal church, that's what we mean. The local church, this is comprised of believers who gather together in a specific location as a family. Like my church is Mill Creek Foursquare. And so when we gather together, this is our local church. And there are thousands, if not tens or hundreds of thousands of local churches all over the world. And so whatever local church you're a part of, that's your local church. We're all part of the universal church, but we're all not part of a lo that local church. And we each have our own family, so to speak, just like we're all the human race but we all have our own family. And there also is something that we call the invisible church. And this is the church from God's perspective, all believers of all time. We're talking past, present, future. God is outside of time. And so he obviously knows past, present, and future. That's called the omniscience of God. If you were paying attention back in the doctrine of God, session number one. And so this is the invisible church that only God can see. He knows the multitudes that are a part of what it is that he is building. And the last reference, I said there were five, there's actually only four. The last reference is the visible church. This is the church of the present and those who follow Jesus. So universal church is kind of a similar concept, but this is the visible church of today. And when we speak of this, this is sort of what we wanna know or understand in terms of structure and references and definitions. Now, when we look at some of the basic structure, I wanna go over like the officers, the ministers, and the leaders. Like, what is Jesus set in motion scripturally? What did the apostles affirm and implement? And then what did the apostle Paul come behind who was also an apostle and set up in terms of structure in the Bible? How do we look at the church in terms of its structure, its officers, its leaders? I think this is such an important conversation. And the first part of this structure is number one is Jesus is the head of the church. First Peter chapter five, verse four calls Jesus the chief shepherd. He is the senior pastor of every church. Every senior pastor of every local fellowship is an under shepherd of the true senior pastor, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.15 calls Jesus the head of the body of Christ. He is in charge of all and we are all under him. Hebrews 3.1 calls Jesus the apostle. He was the first and all other apostles are apostles of Jesus Christ. So this is so vital and important. In fact, when we get to the next section, which is number two, fivefold leaders, Jesus was the apostle, he was the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor and teacher, and everybody who is one of those offices or leadership positions today is actually a prophet of Jesus, an apostle of Jesus, a pastor of Jesus. We're all under him because he was the original and representation of what that even is. So anyways, our second category in the structure of the church is the fivefold ministry leaders because God has gifted and given five types of leadership to build the body of Christ. This is more functional leadership than formal, but this is what it says in Ephesians chapter four, verse 11 through 16. It says this, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, these leaders equip, obviously from this passage, these leaders provoke, these leaders impart, and they do so for the sake of the body. If you were to think about a prophet, a prophet isn't just somebody who hears the word of the Lord and speaks it to people. A prophet, according to Ephesians 4.11 through 15 or 16, is now someone who equips the body to do what they do. And that really is because the Holy Spirit lives in each person. So these leadership gifts are more functional than formal and their role or their job in the Lord is to give away what God has given to them. It's to equip people in order to do what they've been given to do. So a primary job of a pastor is not just to shepherd people, it's to help people shepherd their lives and their families and their influence. The primary job of the evangelist is not just to evangelize, but it's to equip the body of Christ to evangelize because that evangelist is only going to reach so many people. But if he can equip the body of Christ to evangelize, we can reach everybody. And that really is their primary functional role as we look at the structure of the church. Now, the next uh, little piece of this that we want to look at is some of the officers in the church. And what we, what we mean by that is Paul clearly states um, there are elders, pastors, bishops, and overseers throughout his 13 letters. The term elder was borrowed from Israel and the synagogue. It is used 30 times in the New Testament. And, uh, and so this is super important. The word pastor is synonymous with elder because you see that used interchangeably. But the Hebrew word for elder referred to an older man. In spiritual terms, this refers to a mature man who is established in a local church to lead, teach, and oversee. In fact, when Paul talked about appointing an overseer, he said it couldn't be a new convert. So we know that this isn't just somebody that's really old, but it's somebody that has a few years in the Lord. Do not appoint someone that is a recent convert. That would mean they could be old in the natural, but if they weren't progressed in years, spiritually speaking, they could not be an elder. In the New Testament, the word bishop is synonymous with overseer and is used interchangeably with the word elder. In Acts 14.32, Paul appointed elders for the local churches. In 1 Timothy 5.17, it says that elders who ruled well were worthy of double honor, which is financial provision. And 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, it speaks of qualifications for an elder. And I want to make this point really clear because I think what happens is we try to make distinction in some of the terminology of the words in the Bible where there's literally no distinction. So what am I saying? I'm saying this, the word elder, pastor, bishop, and overseer are used synonymously or interchangeably in the New Testament. And so in my understanding that these words are not actually different. Sometimes today the word bishop can be somebody that doesn't just oversee a church, but somebody that oversees multiple churches. I would actually consider that more of an apostle, not a bishop. It doesn't really matter, but just so you know, when you're reading the Bible, when the word bishop comes up, it's not actually speaking of somebody who oversees multiple churches. It's actually speaking of somebody that oversaw the church in that area. And so again, synonymous terms, elders, pastors, bishops, and overseers, they usually just mean the same thing in the New Testament. Here are the qualifications for an elder or an overseer in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Here's what it says. 
It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, remember like I already said, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, no elder is perfect, but these qualities should be seen in increasing measure. What Paul's not saying is this person needs to be perfect, but certainly we need to be able to see fruit that is maturing, that is not just in seed form, right? So all of our fruit, if it hasn't fully developed, it starts in seed form, it grows and bears, you know, the stock grows, and before you know it, it bears fruit. It takes time for us to all have that kind of fruit. But what Paul is saying, there has to be a level of fruitfulness before a person can be appointed. And this is part of the structure of the church. Now, how we go about that is a little bit different, but we just need to know, structurally speaking, we have Jesus as the head of the church. We have functional leadership, which is the fivefold ministry gifts in Ephesians 4. And then we have basically what we're calling overseers or elders or bishops or pastors. And those are the ones that stand in the stead to kind of give primary leadership and decision-making uh, to the church or local churches at large. And here's also another uh, reference that we need to mention when it comes to the structure of the church. The final one that I'm going to mention is deacons or deaconesses. Uh, of the two clear offices in, in the New Testament church, we read of elders and deacons. These were the ones who ran the church. Deacons are mentioned directly in two passages, but we also read of ministers, which is the same thing. When you read the word minister, the word minister in its original language means servant. That's pretty much all that it means, which is synonymous with deacon or deaconess. Philippians 1.1 mentions the office of elders and deacons side by side. 1 Timothy 3.8 gives standards of life for deacons similar to that of an elder. They're really not any different. And the word literally means servant, and these servant-trusted leaders are among us. It's basically where these people are appointed uh, to take care of all of the matters of the church because they are trustworthy. And that's the key to a deacon or a deaconess. They are trustworthy. They are a servant-hearted person, trustworthy, and I mean trusted by all of the church, not just the leaders or the elders, but by the church itself. And this is super important. We need deacons or deaconesses. Now, in today's modern church, at least in my world, we usually don't use the word deacon or deaconesses, but we still have people that we would consider servants that carry this position. And that's really what we're talking about. When Paul set this, it wasn't just to be a rubric for the church of every generation of all time. It was basically an outline more than it was a specified, specific office forever, forever. It was just about the character of what he was setting into motion. And we need, we need to make sure that we have that. When we set up structure, we want to have these working parts in place. If you have new names for them, I don't think it matters that much. Some do. Some actually use the word deacon and deaconess. That doesn't really matter. We have in our church deacons, deaconesses, but we don't use that word. So anyways, just to kind of let you know, I've heard a lot of people say, the modern church doesn't function like the first century church or the New Testament church. And I think they're not always very fair when they say that because they're, using, they're thinking of terminology rather than flow and function 
and our functionality. And I think when you look at functionality, you might see the same exact thing. Obviously in today's world, it's gonna look quite a bit different. And I think we need to be fair in the 21st century as we're comparing it to the first century. Like what changes are there in today's world that makes sense? Which ones do we think scripture would allow for? Because in their generation, it just doesn't have anything written about that. And I think that when you're fair, you see a lot of parallels and progression that is absolutely necessary. Now, an another thing I wanna look at after the structure of the church is the mission of the church. The mission of the church has been given by the Lord Jesus, who is the head of the church. We call this the Great Commission. So the mission of the church is the Great Commission, which we read about in Mark 16 and Matthew 28, which I'm gonna read Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, and Jesus came up, came up and spoke to them saying, all authority, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Jesus calls his followers to be about these things that are clearly in this passage. Preach the gospel to everyone, genders, generations, and nations. He talks about all nations. Reach the whole world. Baptize people in the name of Jesus. Teach people to obey the words of Jesus and trust the person, promises, and presence of Jesus while we're on mission. That really is the mission of the church. This is what we are about, and we can never lose sight of this. We're not just about potlucks and raffles and, you know, nights that we gather together. We gather together to be equipped, to worship God, to be sent out to fulfill his mission. And Jesus spilt his precious blood and he paid a precious price so that we could carry on his ministry and his message that all people would have an opportunity to come back into relationship with him. We are reconcilers. We are here to see the world reconciled. We are awake so that we can help other people be awake to the truth and the person of Jesus Christ. That is our mission as the church, as the people of God. Now, I want to close by talking to you very briefly about the gathering of the church. And what I'm talking about is why is it that so many people have disconnected from the gathering of the church when we come together? Number one, I think that we've lost sight. Maybe we haven't lost it, but we've lost sight of it, of what the gathering really is about. First, we need to know who we are. When we know who we are, we see the value of gathering together. But what are we supposed to do when we gather together? The writer of Hebrews said something very important in a time of great difficulty and persecution. In Hebrews 10, 24, he said this, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now this costs the writer of Hebrews something to say this. He knew that the people that were gathering together might lose something if they were to come together. Maybe people would see them and as a result of them identifying with the church, they might lose their job. Who knows? Something could have happened. There may have been a cost to this, but he still says that it's a greater cost to not gather together than it is whatever happens as a result of identifying with God's people. And that's something that should touch us. That's something that should speak to us right there. But there are several things that we do when we gather together that we need to understand. And I'm just gonna bullet point these and wanna freshly encourage you that as you participate in your, your local church, or even if you're not a part of a local church, that you would come back into the fold, you would come back into the local church and find value 
in it and see yourself a part of it. And the first thing that we do when we gather together is we gather to meet with Jesus. Luke 16, 17 through 19, it says, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. There was a large crowd of his disciples, a great throng of people from all Judea, Jerusalem and the coastal region who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured and all the people were trying to touch him for power was coming out from him. Now this is before the church was birthed, but today we gather in the presence and in the name and the person of Jesus Christ to hear him and be healed by him through his Holy Spirit. So we gather first to meet with Jesus, his presence and his power as the people of God. And the second reason we gather, we gather to worship God. And I could look at Colossians 3.15 and other places where it just talks about coming together and singing praises unto God. In the Bible, there's over 950 verses that speak about singing to God. Well, worship is not just singing. The Bible says, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. So if our mouth isn't singing God's praises, maybe it's not something that our heart is full of. When we gather together, unlike any other place in the entire planet, we sing the praises of God together as we lift up who He is, what He's like in praise and adoration. We gather to worship God. Number three is we gather to be equipped. I've already talked to you about Ephesians 4. That is the primary purpose of the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. And there's a time of equipping. It's not just a time to be encouraged. It's time to be equipped. It's not just a time to be touched. It's a time to be trained. And it's not just a time to be inspired. It's a time to be instructed. If we are followers of Christ, we need to have tools in our hands so that we can go out and complete the mission that God has given to us. And that's what part of the purpose of us gathering together is to be equipped. Number four is we gather to share a spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 says, What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. And all of these must be done for the strengthening, strengthening of the church. The church is not a restaurant where we come and be served. The church is a potluck where everybody brings something in order to share with everyone else. A prayer that I pray very often before I enter into a gathering is I say, God, would you put gifts in my hands to give away? Whatever he puts in my heart, whatever he, whatever he puts in my hands, it's something that I can give away to others. It's not for my benefit. It's to share with the body of Christ. And that's how we look at the gathering of the Lord. It's to share a spiritual gift. It's not to feel spiritual or to say I have the gift of discernment or prophecy. It's to actually be equipped well enough to know that the gathering together of saints, the gathering together of his church is a place where we share what God has given us. Number five is we gather to pray together and we see this all throughout the book of Acts. We get, if, if the church is good at anything, it should be prayer where we depend on God. We come to Christ because we know we need him. We depend upon him for salvation. And in prayer, we come to God because we know we need him. So we cry out to him in the midst of our needs for our personal self, our lives, our families, our church, our region, and our world. The sixth and final reason that we gather together is to receive communion together. These are the sacra sacraments that we practice, and we want to do that. It's not just something you do at home. It's something that you do together with God's people to remember the Lord. And that's what he draws us back to, is to remember who he is, to remember what he's done, and to remember what we're here to do. That in the name of Jesus, we bring the message of Jesus to the whole world. And communion is where we celebrate together who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that we would continue to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus until the day that he comes. So powerful. 
I love talking about the church because it's not just a doctrine, it's a reality that I get to be a part of, that you get to be a part of. But how much are we participating in the church as the people of God? Let me encourage you to do just that, to find your place. If you've been abused or wounded in a local church, I just want to tell you that 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 should not be your Bible and that is not Jesus speaking to you. If somebody's done something to you, I would encourage you to forgive them and then find a place where you fit. There is a place for you. Ask God to help you find that place. If you do have a local church, embed yourselves, share your spiritual gifts, give away what God has given to you. Find your fit in your local church. Don't just attend it, be a part of it. It's something that you belong to. It's not just something that you attend. I would encourage you to go deeper than you've ever gone. As a result of what we've learned, as a result of reminding ourselves of what the Bible says, let's take another step in what God has for us in the church, that the world would look at us and say, I wanna be a part of that because that is an irresistible community. Well, let me pray for you as we close our session today. Father, I just thank you for my friends. I thank you for all of those that are watching this session. God, we pray together that you would strengthen us in our understanding of what the church is and you would also equip us and motivate us to enter in more fully, that we would give ourselves to your people in whatever way that you call us to. I pray that you would lead us, that you would guide us and help us to take whatever steps that you would call us to take. God, we thank you for your word that it sheds light on the things that we need to understand and that your spirit equips us and helps us to take next steps. We love you, and we look forward to what you're about to do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you guys. I look forward to our next session in Systematic Theology.